do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the gospel according to John chapter one. And we will be in verses 19 through to 37. If it's your first time with us, you may not be aware of this, but we have begun this series or began this series back in December where we're working through the gospel of John in its entirety. And that's gonna consume the better part of 2019. So we will be here in John for a long, long, long time. Now, if this is your first time hearing that, maybe you weren't with us in December, there's probably two different sorts of negative reactions that might have just welled up in you. If you're a Christian and you grew up in the church, you've probably heard a lot about the gospel of John. And so the prospect of us spending a full year in it makes you say, why on earth would I wanna do that? I already know everything that I need to know about John. When I first came here to Bay Life, which was in 2005, a long time ago, they were handing out copies of the gospel of John. And the way that it was sort of packaged was, hey, if you're a new Christian, or maybe you're not sure what you think, this is a good starting point. And so I was like sixth or seventh grade, I think. And I was like, well, I'm not a new Christian, but if it's a good starting point, I'll read it. And the, the implication was John is pretty basic. Like if you, if you are just trying to get your bearings in the Bible, John's a good jumping off point for somebody with no background. The more I've read John, the more I realize that's just not true in any way, shape or form. Because I've had numerous friends who've been interested in Christianity and I've said, well, you should read John. And then I get a text like two days later going, what on earth did you just have me read? I don't understand anything that just happened. But maybe you've grown up in the church and you think to yourself, John's a pretty basic book. And so I don't know why I need to spend a whole year studying it. I just wanna tell you, John is far deeper than you could have possibly imagined. Even if you have heard John taught through before, even if you have read John through before, there's more there. I can promise you that. Or maybe you're not a Christian and you are here because somebody dragged you or you're here because you're interested but not sure what you make of the whole Christianity thing or the claims of Jesus. And you say to yourself, why would I wanna spend a whole year in one book when I covered 20,000 years of human history in one semester? And that's a fair question. But I would say this, that John in particular and the Bible as a whole uh, is really the single most influential document ever written by a human being. John's gospel is perhaps the most influential thing that anybody has ever written. And so even if you think that all of this is crazy, even if you're not convinced that Christianity is true, even if you think that, that this is nothing more than interesting literature, I do think that it's worthwhile for you to at least figure out why the message of this book has had so much power for so long. And so we're gonna be spending a good portion of this year walking through John. Uh, we started this in December and John begins his gospel way further back than the other gospels start. Mark starts the story of Jesus with Jesus's baptism, which is what Katie read for us during worship. Matthew and Luke start the story of Jesus with the virgin birth, which is what we so often talk about in the Christmas season. It's what we celebrate in December. But John goes even further back than that. He sort of takes what's implicit in the other gospels and he makes it explicit. He says, listen, the story of Jesus doesn't actually start at his baptism. It doesn't even actually start at the virgin conception, the virgin birth. The story of Jesus actually doesn't really have a beginning because the person of Jesus has always existed with God and as God is the word of the father. But in time and in space, that word unites himself to humanity in what we as Christians call the incarnation. This thing that we celebrate again in Christmas, that God 
became man. But the question, I guess, that arises from that is, well, what do you do with it? Like if everything that John has just said about Jesus is true, that he's always existed, that in time and space, he, be, he became human. If, if Jesus is the very incarnation of God, how does that change how we see ourselves? How does that change how we think of, of what it looks like to live in the world and interact with other people? And that's at the heart of our passage for the evening. So let me just read the portion that we'll be in for the most part, and then we'll step into it together. It says this in John chapter one, verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? They asked, and he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And so they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So here's sort of the scene that we've got. And it's gonna get confusing again because you have John, the author of this book, and then another person named John the Baptist, who's Jesus's cousin. So bear with me if you start to get the Johns conflated, I'm not gonna judge you for it. So John, the author is describing this event that happens probably 30 years into Jesus's life where Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, has a delegation of people from the religious leaders in Jesus's day who come to ask him some questions. They actually come to ask him one specific question. It seems like a very basic question. Who are you? And, and that seems like a surface level question, but there's a lot behind that, that they're actually asking. And it's actually probably a good question to ask. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, what we know from the other gospels is that John the Baptist is kind of a really weird figure. It seems like he spends most, if not all of his life in the desert. I don't know if he has like a cave that he lives in. Uh, he dresses kind of strange. He wears this garment made out of camel skin, which wasn't cool even in John's day. Like that wasn't normal even back then. Uh, he eats locusts and wild honey, which again was not a normal thing. And then every once in a while, he just comes out of his cave in the desert to yell at everybody and tell them they need to repent and baptize people when they say that they've repented. And you might hear that and go, well, that's what religious people do. They get baptized, but nobody was doing that in John's day. Baptism was not a common thing. And so John is this really strange figure and all of the people in leadership in Israel are like, who on earth is this person? What is he doing? It's kind of what happens anytime somebody sort of causes a stir on social media for me because I'm totally disconnected from the modern world. And I start hearing this person's name and how he or she did this thing that's gone viral. And I'm like, who is that? What, what are they doing? Or, or maybe you hear a figure that starts to sort of stir the pot politically and you start to ask the question, who is this person that all of a sudden they're on uh, the headline of every news channel? It's exactly what's happening here. John is causing this stir with his camel skin garment and his terrible locust breath and his house in a cave somewhere in the wilderness. And so the religious leaders are like, who is this guy? And so they ask that question, who are you? But there's also something deeper behind that question because they're not just asking like, so tell me where you were born and what school you went to. They're, they're asking a, a deeper question here. It's not just who are you in some general sense. They're asking who, 
Who do you think you are? Like, how do you conceive of yourself? How do you define yourself that you're doing all of these things? And, and that's actually a question that we all ultimately end up asking at some point, isn't it? Like, who am I? How, how do I think of myself? How do I define myself? 500 years ago, there was a, a theologian from France named Jean Calvin, and he wrote a, a pretty famous a series of books, I guess it was meant to be one book, but it's too many pages to be one book called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And his opening sentence, he says, there's really only two forms of knowledge in the world. There's what we know about God and there's what we know about ourselves. He says in, in all of creation, there's really only two forms of knowledge. There's knowledge of self and knowledge of God. Which one comes first? I don't know. Uh, which, the way in which these two things interact with each other, I'm not sure, but that's really all that it comes down to. And this is ultimately one of the questions that John the Baptist has asked. Who are you? It's the question of a knowledge of self. I wonder if somebody were to ask you that, how you'd respond to it. Because I know if somebody asked me, who are you? I would probably say, well, my name's Travis. And I was born in South Florida. And I live in the capital of the universe, which is Tampa, Florida. And I, I like tattoos and heavy metal music. And, and I would start listing maybe where I'm from. I might say my parents are Betsy and Thurman. Surely you've heard of Thurman because everybody's heard of Thurman. Uh, and maybe I would say something about my preferences in terms of music or, or art or entertainment. Maybe I'd say something about my friends and who, who I spend time with. Maybe you'd answer the same way. Somebody asks, who are you? But here's what's interesting is when John is asked that question, he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, well, my name's John and I grew up in this village and I have this really lovely cave in the wilderness. Would you like to come eat bugs with me? He doesn't say anything like that. No, when they ask him, who are you? He starts with, I'm not the Christ. And then he goes on and they ask him, are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? Which was sort of this Jewish expectation that before the Messiah came, Elijah would show up or some sort of a prophet would show up. And he says, no, I'm not any of those. And then they ask him again, well, who are you? And he says, well, I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about who prepares the way for the Messiah, who cries out in the wilderness. And they're like, well, why are you baptizing? And he says, I'm baptizing because I'm the one who's preparing the way for the Christ. And this is the interesting thing. When they ask who John is, John only describes himself as he exists in relationship to Jesus. Everything that John says about himself, the only way that John can think of himself is as he thinks of himself in relationship to Christ. That is what his identity is comprised of. Who I am is who I am in relationship to Christ. For the Christian in this room, I wonder if you could say the same thing. Like if somebody were to ask you, who are you? Would you start with political affiliation? Would you start with entertainment choices? Would you start with where you live or what your favorite food is? Or when you're asked who you are at the very core of your being, who are you? Is it defined by who you are in light of who Jesus is? Because that's how John defines himself. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. Who are you? I'm the one preparing the way for the Christ. No, who are you? I'm the one who's not as good as the Christ. He just keeps saying it over and over and over again because Jesus has become the defining feature of his existence. Now, maybe you're not a Christian and you hear that and that sounds awful to you. Like why on earth would I want my whole identity 
be wrapped up in somebody else? Why can't I just be myself? Why can't I define for myself who I want to be? And that's certainly the impulse in the world in which we live. And I understand why that might be the impulse, that, that we want to define ourselves and we want, to, we want to figure out who we are for ourselves and we want to be unique and we want to be individual. But here's this really interesting thing that you can see throughout culture is the harder we try to be unique, the more we look like everybody else who's trying to be unique. So for example, you can go to a city like Austin or Portland and eventually you'll find a mural in most of those cities and they say something like, keep Austin weird or keep Portland weird. But here's the really intriguing thing. (laughs) Here's the really intriguing thing about weird Portland and weird Austin is that those cities look exactly like every other secular city full of millennials and tech startups. There's nothing weird about them. As hard as they're trying to be unique and to define themselves, they end up looking like everyone else trying to do the same thing. Or you can hop on Instagram and look at all of these people who are trying to carve out for themselves sort of a unique identity as somebody who travels or who loves food or who cares about art. And the really crazy thing about it is that every travel vlogger's Instagram looks like every other travel vlogger's Instagram. As hard as you, as you try to be unique and define yourself for yourself, you actually end up just looking like everybody else. There was a, a musician, he was in a, a doom metal band. If you don't know what that is, then that's totally fine. Uh, but in the 90s, he was in this band that started to develop this really uh, prominent reputation. He'd grown up in punk, he'd grown up in metal, he'd grown up in the subculture and the counterculture, and he just got fed up with it like five years into this band's run. And, and he realized that as hard as he was trying to rebel against society, as hard as he was trying to define himself as a unique individual by himself, he looked like everybody else doing the same thing. He was caught up in sex and he was caught up in drugs and rock and roll. And as individual as he thought he was, he looked like everybody else who thought the same thing. And so what he did was pretty radical. He, he quit his band and he joined an Eastern Orthodox monastery in Northern California. And he decided, I've tried to rebel my way. I've tried to define myself. I'm going to see what it looks like to be defined instead by Jesus. And it was really fascinating what happened because at the end of his time in the monastery, he said, I thought all this time that by going my own way, by defining myself, I was, I was actually in rebellion. But he said, in fact, the most rebellious thing I've ever done was to commit myself to the way of Jesus. That is the last true rebellion. And that's what it looks like to actually be defined, not by yourself, but by another. So when John's asked, who are you? He says, all I am is what I am in relationship to Christ. But he says something else that's really interesting. The first question they ask him when they say, who are you? He responds with, I'm not the Christ, which is kind of a weird response because that wasn't really the question. They didn't say, are you the Christ? They just said, who are you? And he's like, I didn't do it. I'm not the Christ. It, it sounds like he almost has like a guilty conscience maybe. But if, if you haven't grown up in church, maybe, maybe this does seem strange. For people in John's day, there was this massive expectation of this figure that, that you see in the prophetic books in the Old Testament, who's going to appear, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, God's promise, promised redeemer. Uh, the Christ is what? they were referred to. 
And there was all these expectations bound up in that, that, that the, the Christ, the Messiah, was going to set things right with the tyranny of Rome, that it was gonna throw off the weight of oppression, and that the Christ was going to deal with the sin and the guilt of the people of Israel, and that the Christ was going to, to bring back to the world the rule and the reign of God, and, and the Christ was going to make all things new, and there was all this expectation. They were waiting for this figure to appear and to set things right. And John starts causing a stir from his cave in the desert. And they start going, maybe this is it. Maybe it's him, as crazy as that might sound. And so they say, who are you? And John says, I'm not that person. I'm not the Christ, the one that you expect. What What he's saying is all of the things that you're hoping for, all of the things that you wanna see set right in the world, all of the the sin that you need dealt with, all of the brokenness that you wanna see restored, I can't fix it for you. I don't have the ability to do that. I'm not that person. And that probably is an important example for us because how often in our conversations with friends and people in our life who are struggling, how often do we talk with them and counsel them through issues as though we actually have the power to fix it? Like we would never say, I I think I'm the Christ. But in the way that we relate to people, we implicitly assume that we can solve all their problems if they just listen to us and if we just try hard enough. John's under no such illusion. He says to them, everything you want, everything you're hoping for, I can't fix it. I'm not the one that can do that. One of the things that I love about the the ministry that we partner with in Scotland, 20 Schemes, is that they are committed to working in the, the poorest communities in the United Kingdom, the housing schemes. These are the most deprived places in the UK. And with that comes all sorts of challenges. You've got cycles of poverty. You have uh, histories of abuse and mental illness. You have uh, drug addiction and dependence. You have all of these issues that, that are sort of at work in the community. And, and 20 Schemes is so good about helping people to, to find homes where they're homeless and helping them to find jobs where they're jobless and to help them find counseling where they're struggling with mental illness and to help them find rehab where they're struggling with addiction. They're, they're committed to meeting all those needs. But one of the things that they always say after all of that is done, after, after uh, people have reached the end of that process is ultimately your deepest need is one that none of these programs can meet because your deepest need is that you need to be made new and you need your sins forgiven and no social program can fix that. They recognize that as important as all these other needs are and as desperately as, as we try to meet them, the greatest need is one that none of us can meet for someone else. Only Jesus can do that. John the Baptist recognizes the same thing. He says, I'm I'm not the Christ. I can't fix these things that you want me to fix. But my job is to prepare the way for the one who can. My job is to clear a path so the one that actually can fix this, the one that can actually deal with your deepest needs so that he can do that. He makes good on his role the next day. We're told in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of who I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. He said, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. John has has a, a perfect conception of who he is. He sees himself in light of Jesus. He knows that he is not the Messiah, uh, that he doesn't have the ability to save people. But then uh, we're told the next day, he points to the one who can. He sees Jesus walking up, which is, I guess, convenient. And he says, this guy, this is the one I'm telling you about. This is the one I've been mentioning. He's the one who can fix everything. But then he says something strange. He says, this is the one I saw the spirit descend on like a dove which is actually a reference to this passage that Katie read for us earlier in worship, the baptism of Jesus. Uh, If if you're not familiar with this, or maybe you just forgot what we read like 15 minutes ago, uh, Jesus is being baptized by his cousin, John. And as he comes out of the water, we're told that the heavens are opened. And I don't really know what that means or what that looks like, but the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And the father says, this is my beloved son. And John says, there's something about that He says, I saw that happen. And something about that has confirmed for me that this is the Christ. This is the one who's going to fix it. I wonder if you've ever thought about that picture of the spirit descending like a dove. Why is that in there? Why doesn't the spirit descend like lightning or like fire or like an anvil or, or any other number of things? I mean, the spirit descends in tongues of fire at Pentecost. So obviously the, the appearance of the spirit is mutable maybe. So why a dove? This I think is why it actually gets back to the other thing that Katie read for us in worship. In case you were wondering, the passages we read actually have something to do with what I'm going to say. So if you want to figure out what I'm going to talk about, see if you can figure it out during worship and tie all the threads together before I tell you the answer. So in the book of Genesis, there's actually two creations, if you will. There's Genesis 1, in which God creates the world from nothing. And it says that all of the world is uh, covered in water and the spirit hovers over the waters. The the literal Hebrew there is the spirit flutters over the waters. It's the language of like a bird hovering over the water. And then as God speaks, the land rises out of the water. This is how God creates with the spirit hovering like a dove over the water. And as God speaks, the land emerges. But then you go eight chapters later into Genesis and the world has grown so wicked and so unjust and so perverse that God destroys the world and he destroys the world by submerging it back into water. It's called the flood. Maybe you saw the movie with Russell Crowe and Emma Watson. And so what essentially happens here is that God uncreates the world. The world emerges from water by God's voice. And then because of sin, God uncreates the world by submerging it back into the water creation and decreation. But then Noah, 40 days in, if you've seen the movie or read the book, which is much better, Noah decides maybe the, it's time that we can get out of this ark. And so he, he emerges onto the deck with a dove. And he kind of, I don't know if he like throws the dove <laughs> or if he, it's kind of like a wedding and he releases the dove. I don't know how he sends the dove out, but the dove goes and the dove goes for a long ways. And then the dove comes back, most likely exhausted because the world is still submerged in water. The world is still under the judgment of God. There's nowhere for the dove to land. And so then Noah waits another seven days and he releases the dove again. And the dove flies for however long and the dove comes back with this branch and its mouth is olive branch is what scripture says, which is sort of a symbol of, of blessing and of healing and of restoration but the dove still comes back. 
because there's nowhere for the dove to land. The world is under the judgment of God. It has been destroyed. It hasn't been made new. It hasn't been brought back out from the water like it was in Genesis 1. And then Noah sends the dove out a third time and the dove doesn't come back. And Noah says, okay, the judgment of God has subsided. The, the flood waters are receding. The, the new creation is emerging from the water and it's safe to come out. But it's interesting. You don't hear about that dove for however long took place between Genesis eight and then the gospels. That implication is the dove found somewhere to land, some new piece of creation that's emerged from the judgment of God. You don't hear about that dove again until Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because Jesus emerges from the waters and the dove finally descends and finds a place to rest because out of the waters has come the first part of God's new creation. And so the dove that was released by Noah in, in a very metaphorical way. I don't think it's the literal dove, right? This is the Holy Spirit, but, but the spirit takes the form of a dove as if to say, finally, after all this judgment, the new creation of God has emerged from the waters. The dove has a place to rest. And John sees that and he goes, this is the one who can fix it. This is the person who is the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I can't solve your problems. I can't deal with your sin. I can't deal with your guilt, but I saw the dove rest on him when he came out of the waters. He's the one who can do it. And my whole life will be defined by that one's life in light of who he is and what he does. So the next day after that day, we see in verse 35, John is standing with two of his disciples and he looked and Jesus is walking by again. I don't know where they are that Jesus just keeps happening to walk by. And John says, behold, the lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. You see, John has come to see that Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. The son of God made flesh the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he knows what we should know as Christians. If that's true, our whole life needs to be lived in light of his. But he also recognizes that if Jesus is all of these things, then that life that John lives must be lived in service of pointing people to him. And so John is, it appears just kind of hanging out with some friends and Jesus passes by and he makes the most of every opportunity to point people to the one on whom the spirit rests. And that should be true of you and I as well. There's a lot of different ways of doing evangelism. I don't think any of them are inherently bad. There's some that I prefer over others. I'm not a big door to door guy. But what is true is that John is a paradigm for us if you're a Christian, if your life is defined by Christ, then you are to make the most of every opportunity to point to Jesus and say, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that may happen while you're hanging out with some friends on the next day, or that may happen over a cup of coffee. That may happen in an interesting conversation in your biology lab. But... John holds out a picture for us. When we see who Jesus is, 
We come to be defined by him. And when we're defined by him, we can't help but pointing people towards him. I pray that that's true of you. I pray that that's true of our ministry.